The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Geeks, and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 76.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. What an issue, what an episode. Quite a conversation with Dalibor, the indie hype man. Hot takes abound, right, when you get somebody who's that deep into the world of comics. I was just amazed at the breadth of his knowledge, like how many books he had read over the years. I'm like, how have you had time to catch up on all these? different stories but of course we missed Michael but he is going to be here a little bit later to talk a casting call with us but while we're getting things kicked off here it's time to check out Cap's Kooky Contests. All right, our first one here, Dark Horse Comics presents the Be a Professional Inker contest. How to play. Hey, you've always wanted to be a professional comic book artist, right? Sure you have. Who has it? Well, Gary Martin's new book, The Art of Comic Book Inking, is a sure way to learn how to hone your artistic abilities and get on the fast track to becoming a professional inker. It's chock full of detailed explanations on drawing implements, artistic approaches, and insider tricks. With this year's contest, we want to give you a head start on inking. See that penciled illustration on the left and it's a page from a nexus comic by steve rude that's your sample page make a good clean photocopy of it on some decent paper then go to work we recommend using vellum or tracing paper ink the pages as best you can pay special attention to the detail and most importantly take your time the best entry will go on to ink actual steve rude comic book pages sorry no professional comic book artist can enter and win <laughs> grand prize what winner will get the opportunity to ink eight pages of steve rude's mothman story to appear in a future issue of Dark Horse Presents. They'll also receive one copy of Gary Martin's The Art of Comic Book Inking. Amaze your family! Second prize, 25 readers will receive one copy of Gary Martin's The Art of Comic Book Inking. Impress your friends! <laughs> then you have Nexus here, and he's holding some scissors. I don't know if Wizard added that or if Steve Rude did this art just for the contest page, but he's got a word balloon that says, just be careful when cutting out the form. We'll take no entries with blood on them. <laughs> Now, for our legal text, we have Dark, Dark Legal Matters. No purchase necessary. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Dark Horse, professional comic book artists, their immediate families, and sock puppets. Oh, the sock puppets who are comic book fans? Aspiring inkers? No luck. All right, next one here. No cash equivalent or substitute prizes will be offered. Muppets are flammable. Well, there you go. <laughs> it does say specifically, though, at the very end that the contest will be judged by Gary Martin. So that's kind of nice. You know, you get the guy who's actually the subject of the thing they're trying to promote is involved. The one thing I want to say is I feel like being a comic book inker is like being a bassist in a rock band. It's the job that's like the unsung hero of the group. It's like the backbone. It's what really gives like a feeling, like a structure to the art itself. It's just funny. Like nobody sets out to be an inker, but an inker, like somebody like Jimmy Palmiotti, you look at how many projects he's touched, you know, or just somebody who is like Scott Williams with Jim Lee, like so essential. I feel the same about Alex Garner, who we actually mentioned, you know, he responded to a letter on this episode with his work on Gen 13. What is J. Scott Campbell art without Alex Garner ink? 
looks like to me they go hand in hand. But anyway, let's get on to our next contest here. This one's called the Write Your Own Divine Right Half. And Christy Blaze is there. She's saying, here's your chance to write your very own comic book. Jim Lee's got a problem. You see, Wildstorm's head honcho really wants to do a half issue for his new series, Divine Right, The Adventures of Max Faraday. But he needs a story. That's where you come in. Jim wants you to write his Divine Right half plot. By the way, a plot means a detailed description of what happens in the story. So now's your chance to become a real comic pro by plotting an eight-page Divine Right story. Important things to remember. One, story must have a beginning, middle, and end. Each story must be exactly eight pages, please. Two, no profanity, nudity, or excessive violence. Keep entries PG-13. Three, characters must act in accordance with their usual behavior. Four, it isn't necessary to include dialogue. 5. Be brief and to the point. Don't waste time on lengthy descriptions. Trust your artist. He is Jim Lee, after all. <laughs> That's pretty great. Number 6. And most importantly, don't forget to type in double space. Sorry, but no comic book professionals may enter. I love this idea that they think all these comic book pros are like, well, I want to work with Jim Lee. Well, I want to work with Steve Root. And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> now, the grand prize. One lucky reader will not only get the chance to write his own comic book, but he'll get to have Jim Lee draw it, too. He'll receive writing credit on the Divine Right half, and he'll even get paid. Plus, he'll also receive a New Horizons convention poster and a full set of Wildstorm's New Horizons relaunch books signed by the creators. Wow, just getting paid in addition to getting credit? That's pretty sweet. First prize, five first prize winners will receive a Horizons convention poster and a full set of Wildstorm's New Horizon relaunch books signed by the creators. Second prize, ten second prize winners will receive a Wildstorm New Horizons convention poster. With our legal text, it says, this month's contest is sponsored by Wildstorm Productions. A wild, wild bunch of people. Get it? They're wild. All right, here we go. Legal rights instead of divine right. Legal right. Okay. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Wildstorm Productions, comic book professionals, their immediate families, and whoever wrote that ending to the film version of Event Horizon. That movie kicked ass for the first 75%. Sucked ass for the last 25%. <laughs> Oh man, I remember seeing that movie in theaters. It was intense. But my favorite part is just when it cuts to credits and then you get that Prodigy song. It's, it's some funky shiz. And I guess Jim McLaughlin used up all his words in that first one because there is no other joke in this contest. All right, let's get to our next one though. Marvel Comics and Comic Images present the Incredible Hulk Drop the Gamma Bomb contest. Years ago, a gamma bomb explosion transformed Dr. Bruce Banner into the walking monstrosity known as the Incredible Hulk. But just imagine, what if it was Mr. Fantastic who was there when the gamma bomb blew up? Or Spider-Man? Or Brother Voodoo? What would each of them look like? What new powers would they have? Just how messed up would these guys be? That's pretty awesome. I love that as a premise for any contest. I would just love that as a premise for a wizard article. But it says here, how to enter. Pick your favorite Marvel character. Imagine what he or she would look like if he'd been at the gamma bomb explosion instead of old Bruce. Draw him, use an 8x10 piece of paper and any old drawing instruments you care to use. Be creative! Use that dog of the years. The most creative entries will win these prizes. Grand prize. One winner will receive an original sketch by Incredible Hulk artist Adam Kubert, where he'll draw his interpretation of your Gamma Bomb entry. Plus, the winner will get a Hulk vs. Thing t-shirt, a Hulk retailer stand-up, a Hulk Pez dispenser, and an autographed 
autographed copy of Hulk, Future of Perfect Number One, signed by Peter David and George Perez. Bob's away. Second prize, 10 other people will receive a Hulk retailer stand-up, a Hulk Pez dispenser, and an autographed copy of Hulk, Future of Perfect, signed by Peter David and George Perez. That's the Bob. Some winning entries will appear in future installments of Wizard's Drawing Board section. Now, you know they're putting that's the Bob as a joke, because as you'll recall from the main episode, in the top 10 list, they actually mocked the person who created the term Unibomb, or that's the bomb. Which, if you ask me, they really should have just been mocking the people who had no business using that phrase. But I digress. As far as who I would have suggested for this, you know, it came up very briefly when they mentioned that t-shirt, but I was thinking immediately the thing. Because the Fantastic Four already existed, right, when Hulk was being created. So to me, the idea that what if the Fantastic Four had showed up, Ben Grimm stayed behind, or he jumped ahead to save the day, or whatever it was. So he was already affected by cosmic rays, but what would happen if he was affected by gamma rays as well? I don't know, I just think there could be some interesting story points you could pull out of that. Just my thought. Anyway, we will see what happens uh, when that's reported on in later issues of Wizard. But it says here, this month's contest is sponsored by Marvel Comics and Comic Images, gamma-irradiated freaks of nature. And then the legal text has changed to Hulk Smash Lawyers. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Marvel Comics, Comic Images, their immediate families, and people who call She-Hulk Shulky for short. Say that out loud. Shulky sounds stupid, eh? So stop saying it. Oh, come on. I've said it once or twice, but I agree. You know, just call her Jan. I feel like that's just easier. Next one here. No cash equivalent or substitute prizes will be offered. While the Hulk is a good guy, Hulk Hogan has become a bad guy. Hulk Hogan likes pie. <laughs> Had to get one more rhyme in there, I guess. But I love that you can just pinpoint this moment in time, right? Hulk Hogan has just formed the NWO with Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. He's Hollywood Hulk Hogan now. He's dyeing his beard partially black. He's wearing that bandana. He's just looking evil with those sunglasses on. Man, oh, that's so fun. So as we close out this segment, uh, as we often do, we want to check out the contest winners page. So there is a follow-up to a contest from Wizard 71, which was promoting Batman and Robin the movie. But basically what they said is, create yourself as a hero if you wanted to join the dynamic duo, what would your superhero persona be? And so the winner in this case is Tobias Keegan Stenson of Fort Collins, Colorado. And it says here that he would join the dynamic duo as Solar Voltaic, the defender of Earth. And he says, quote, I am the physical manifestation of the sun's power, which is held in the obsidian shell that covers my body, says Tobias. Check out his computerized self-depiction below. This is like an MS Paint drawing of some sort. And basically he kind of looks like a dark big bad Beetleborg because he's like not supposed to be in shadow but it looks like he's backlit by this kind of fiery backdrop he's got fire that's shooting out of his hand that he's just kind of holding out but he's got these little beetleborg-esque antennae at the top he's got some spikes and things sticking off his shoulders he's got like silver armor running down the middle and his like little accent pieces so anyway uh very interesting who knows how old he is uh but he won the contest he got a lot of batman and robin merch so good for him uh but hey speaking of the comic book movies it's time we check out the wizard casting call from this issue so michael come on down
Hello again and welcome to another Wizard cast and call, and this time it's for Sin City. This is quite an eclectic array of people. They've, you know, hodgepodge together, and this is in no way relation to the actual Sin City film that we get, you know, several years later. Yeah, it's and- crazy to think actually how close it was. I mean, it was like eight years later or something like that, but at the same time, it feels like some of these would have matched up and none of them match up. Yeah, so- not one. Yeah. So it starts off by saying it's a no brainer with the ultra-violent brain-splattering movies by Quentin Tarantino and John Woo being gobbled up by audiences, it would make sense to do a movie based on Frank Miller's Sin City comic book series. Here's why. You got crime noir, violence up the yin-yang, savvy heroes, sultry vixens, and a silent ninja chick who would take your head off before you'd blink. It's got it all. In fact, if directed by Mr. Tarantino or Woo, it would kick huge ass even better if you were to film this comic book style black and white hollywood should take more chances like that anyway if we had a gazillion dollar budget to make a sin city flick what follows is who we'd cast it in it's so funny that they even say this black and white style which i i find amazing that even you know i almost wonder if Robert Rodriguez sort of read this and was like, we could do it this way. Sure, why not? Who knows? Well, the um, fact that they said a gazillion dollars and it didn't cost that much for no. him to make it. Like, that's the other part, too. You didn't need to go overboard in your budget. You just like be ingenious like he is. So they don't really specify which book they're starting with. They're like, what, seven or eight volumes of Sin City? Exactly. Right. So they start off with Dwight McCarthy, who I don't think is, is that the character that Bruce Willis played? No, no. Dwight in the movie is played by Clive Owen. Oh, right. Clive Owen. That's right. So they cast Timothy Hutton. And I think it's only based on the fact that his hair in the photo sort of flops in the same way that Dwight McCarthy's hair flops. (laughs) And I can't even say like they're mentioning he's from the dark half of the Falcon of the Snowman. I've seen neither of those films. So I just don't know Timothy Hutton's work, but he must have a, a dark side. Yeah, he's kind of like a B-list actor or C-list actor at the time. The next one up, they have for Marv. And now I look at it like this, like nobody could play Marv better than Mickey Rourke. You know, let's just. Well, the only person who could have done it if the movie was being made in like the 70s would have been George C. Scott, because he just looks like Marv in real life to me. (laughs) Okay, I I get that. They have Robert Burke from Dust Devil. I don't know. I don't know who this guy is at all. Got no clue. You you know who he is, actually? Oh, I just remembered. They they maybe didn't mention it because it was such a flop. He is the replacement RoboCop in RoboCop 3. That's Robert John Burke. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Now, the next one here, though, uh, for Miho, they want Tamlin Tomita from the Joy Luck Club, which is, you know, one of those at the time. It's a girl movie. Yes. So I don't know her work, but uh, she definitely has, a you know, a, a very mysterious look the way her hair is draped across her eye in this one mm-hmm. so that could work I get, I, I get that yeah you want to take the next one yeah so for Gail they want the one and only Sigourney Weaver now Gail is the character who is being played by uh, Rosario Dawson yeah by Rosario Dawson in the movie so a Sigourney Weaver for Rosario Dawson that's just kind of funny to me like that yeah. <laughs> that trade up but either way I think Rosario Dawson was excellent. Sigourney Weaver would have added like a different level of class. 
class. Like Rosario Dawson's like kind of like dark and edgy and kind of like got that little smirk. And I think if you if Scorty Weaver is just being played serious, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> so, almost like devilish in a way. Yeah, you know, if you think about it. So for John Hardigan, which is the character that Bruce Willis does actually play, they have none other than Craig T. Nelson from Coach. <laughs> And I I think basically because he played a cop in, was it Turner and Hooch or Cop in a Half? Action Jackson. He's like the bad guy cop. Oh, yes. He plays a bad guy in a lot of cop movies. Like he's always kind of like, I I, I think it was Canine with Jim Belushi where he plays the bad guy cop. (laughs) And, but like, sure. sure, I I just, I don't think anybody could play it as grizzled as Bruce Willis though. Like he played it so grizzled and badass, but whatever. Ricky knows cool i liked coach i liked you know poltergeist and all those other shows that he's in now the next one we have for nancy callahan who was played by jessica alba they have christy swanson from buffy the vampire slayer and mannequin 2 on the move oh yes of course how, how could i <laughs> forget the Phantom, which we covered That's, on id super cinema this is true i guess honestly you know who i think would be better is who played Supergirl in the Supergirl movie? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, that's almost one for one. Yeah, they're like very like, interchangeable at the time. Yeah. But uh, you know, Christy Swanson's cool. I I actually loved her in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, she doesn't have a huge career after that, really. I mean, she does a lot of smaller roles and such. Mm-hmm. But again, Jessica Alba was so good in that role that it's hard to pass up. Uh, next one I'll give to you. Yeah, so this is interesting. This is a character that I don't know if this character actually appeared in any of the movies, not to my recollection. Not but that I can remember Eva, either. Yeah, who they're saying is Dwight's deceitful ex-lover. But they want Gillian Anderson from the X-Files, which I think that'd be an interesting twist to get her in there. If not, who I always felt like is the B-tier Gillian Anderson is she was starting King. Candyman. Oh, what's her name? Yeah. Um, I know you're talking about Candyman. What a reference that Candyman. is. <laughs> Virginia Madsen? Virginia Madsen. That's what I was thinking. She feels like she's almost Jillian Anderson, but not. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. Next one here, you know, we had Michael Clark Duncan played this role in the movie we got, but for Manute, the hired muscle, just the big chauffeur dude, they wanted this model who apparently just goes by the name Tyson. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, there you go. He's nice looking bald dude. Doesn't look <laughs> dangerous though. Doesn't like, look big enough either. Like yeah. you could almost get somebody like a George Foreman in a way back then. <laughs> Evander Holyfield. Yeah, yeah exactly. The boxers yeah. of the era. Yeah. yeah. So Douglas Klump, uh, I don't know who plays this. Is this character even in the movie? I think so. I think he's like the little weird guy. Like there's the big guy and the little guy that are in the alleyway and they get they get like killed pretty quickly or at least attacked by, uh, <laughs> by Bruce Willis. But yeah, they're just kind of like this bickering duo. Yeah. So they have Kevin Pollack who I love Kevin Pollack. He's like a chameleon. He can play anything. I'm good with that casting. Sure, Kevin Pollock's hilarious and he's... only if he does the voice from Willow. <laughs> Seeing his cameo in the Willow series on Disney Plus made me so happy. For the next one here, for his counterpart, they want for the character of Bert Schlub, and they're saying they want Matthew Pinfield. Do you guys remember Matt from Pinfield? The, the MTV VJ? Yeah, I know him best because he did the narration on the Kiss Second Coming documentary. It was a two VHS set that was released when they got back together in 96, 97. So he was the voice of that. So I was like, oh, Matt Pinfield, he's so cool. <laughs> 
That is hilarious. I don't know if he can act, though, but sure, fine. So the next one is Blue Eyes, which I don't remember her from the movie either. She was probably um, just there, like, as a character. They probably, You probably saw her blue eyes for a second, but I don't know that she had a yeah. role. Yeah. And, and if they made more of the movies, they probably would have played more up into that character. But the person they have is Sherilyn Fenn, who I guess was on Twin Peaks. She looks familiar, but I don't know much of anything that she's ever been in, to be honest yeah, with you. She, she's a name I hear a lot when people talk about movies from the late 80s and 90s and TV shows like she was in a lot of stuff she was in Wild at Heart her name comes up but she is not someone who who made an impact on me either but yeah. I know for this moment she was definitely like you know the the sexy sultry lady like that mm -hmm. a lot of people went oh guess what she was on Titans for one episode but oh. <laughs> and Robot Chicken where she played Mummy Pig <laughs> And Mama Dinosaur. So they just want her to play moms on Robot Chicken. Apparently. Is. She was also um, in the movie Of Mice and Men and uh, in an episode of CSI. So that's about all I can... Everybody's been on CSI. All Pretty right. much. For Senator Rourke, who is like, you know, the big mastermind, the political devil behind there, mm -hmm. Charles Durning. With Charles Durning, he's been in so many things. He's in Tootsie. He has a, a memorable role, I feel like, in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm -hmm. He's just, yeah. So Charles Durning is just one of those classic, you know, old fat guy actors <laughs> with attitude. <laughs> old fat guy actor well he was always the he was always the old fat guy he played cops a lot i mean in the actual movie they have powers booth who's a great actor too like based on the picture of this guy as opposed to going with charles durning here i feel like they could do like a don rickles kind of a character you know <laughs> instead of playing mr potato head a toy story he does sin city yes <laughs> Now, for Junior Rourke, who is famously played by Nick Stahl from okay. Terminator 3. So they have... I understand what they were going for, <laughs> but I feel like the character that the actor they cast may be as old, if not older, than Charles Durning. They cast Christopher Lloyd in the look of Uncle Fester from the Adams family. <laughs> I mean, it would have made the movie much more interesting. I would have loved if that was just Christopher Lloyd, like just decided, like, for the next 10 years, this is my look. My and look. I'm just gonna play Uncle Fester in different movies not called fester but he always just plays the same character that would have yes. been a choice that would have been amazing <laughs> be very meta yeah man this is kind of wild again to look at this moment in time and who you would pull into the sin city universe because yeah like really those characters because they are so like just archetypal it's yeah. just whatever actor could fill the role but at the same time, like, I just wonder, like, if Tarantino had done it, because we see what he did with, like, Kill Bill. Obviously, they're referencing, you know, Pulp Fiction and everything else he's done. But I just, like, I feel like the stylized nature of Kill Bill, which, did that come out before or after Sin City? Because it seems like maybe he was borrowing a little bit, like, especially, like, in that big, like, uh, you know, martial arts fight scene, the sword fight in the dojo or whatever in the middle. I think Sin City comes out first. Okay. Because Sin City came out in 05. Uh -huh. So Kill Bill, I think, was definitely... Definitely after 05. Oh, no, 04. Yeah, 2003 and then 2004. So, wow. So, like, yeah, so all, like, being developed around the same time. Okay. So, interesting. Hmm. I didn't yeah. know that. So... 
listen, overall, you know, pretty decent list, you know, a couple of weird ones here and there, but that's not uncommon for the wizard casting call. So, <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thanks funny. for joining us, Michael. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody. Well, you found out what we thought of those casting call choices, but now it's time to check out Wizard's thoughts on the current crop of comics with The Skinny. <laughs> Okay, so the first one here is Curse of the Spawn, and it says, Cursed with Confusion. So they're talking about now issues 5 through 11. They had people like Alan McElroy, Dwayne Turner, Danny Mickey as the creative team. Says, what you need to know, in a dark vein, Curse of the Spawn examines the Spawn mythos, past, present, and future, in short, self-contained story arcs. The good. Without even realizing it, you find yourself manipulated in an interesting way. The writing can change the way you perceive certain characters of the Spawn mythos. In the Angela storyline, issues 9 through 11, the way the characters were written makes you realize that Spawn is technically a bad guy, and Angela's really the hero, instead of the usual vice versa. You find your loyalty switching from one to the other. There are a number of intriguing plot elements. The idea of a serial killer who only hunts serial killers is a neat concept, and the descriptions and psychoses behind all the killers was really well thought out. They weren't just murderers violently killing people, these killers had motives. Insane though they were. And you've got a peek inside their distorted minds. The summary at the beginning of each issue makes it a bit easier to follow the story, and in today's high cover-priced market, a consistent $1.95 cover price is not only affordable, it's applaudable. The bad. The overly melodramatic word usage, as well as the massive blocks of text per page, make Curse exceptionally hard to get into. You find yourself wading through tons of superfluously descriptive text, trying to decipher just what the heck's going on. In the aforementioned Angela storyline, a lot of the over-detailed text blocks eclipsed what was happening in the art, so much that the two never meshed. A better smoother marriage between story and art would cut down on the confusion. As for the art itself, while the style is really nice to look at, the storytelling is very inconsistent. Often you find yourself on a two-page spread wondering in which order to read the panels. The stories themselves drag on a bit too long. The serial killer story from 5 to 8 was interesting, but could have wrapped up an issue shorter. So could Angela's adventure. And after trudging through these wordy like these stories, the endings leave you empty. You don't really come away with any real empathy for these characters or their actions. The buzz? This is the year of Spawn. Major motion picture, HBO animated series, high-selling toys. Spawn is everywhere and fans can't seem to get enough of him. The skinny, at heart, the characters in Curse of the Spawn are conceptually sound. It's too bad they're cursed by confusing melodramatic and wordy stories with inconsistent storytelling. The verdict, a two, which is officially an UGG rating. So they were not on board for that, you know, branching out of the Spawn universe. But let's take a look at what they thought about Alpha Flight. Can this resurrected series take flight? So this will be interesting since we had that conversation on the main episode, what we thought of it. So they're talking about the first four issues. Remember Stephen T. Siegel, Scott Clark. So what you need to know. Manipulated by the Canadian government's mysterious Department H. Old Alpha Flight members Puck, Vindicator, Madison Jeffries, and Sasquatch, minus his mind, are brought together with Radius Flex, Murmur, Manbot, and mysteriously young and memory-lacking Guardian to form a new Alpha Flight team. The good. The level of manipulation in this book goes beyond what you'd see in most government-sponsored superhero teams. Department H forces Puck and Vindicator to join against their will, going so far as to erase their memories of refusal. The agency actually hires supervillains 
shields to fight Alpha Flight just so the team can be studied. Alpha members are constantly under video surveillance so Department H can be aware of their every move. The book carries through with many interpersonal relationships. Puck, a natural leader, is butting heads with Guardian, the official leader. Guardian's estranged wife, Vindicator, can't deal with him not remembering her or their past life together. Radius has a bullying relationship with his younger half-brother, Flex. Each interpersonal situation packs the team's, impacts the team's performance, and it's interesting to watch. Plus, new twists are given to the new character's seemingly unoriginal powers. Radius is wrapped in a thin force field but can't eat or have sex without equipment. Murmur can force people to do whatever she wants and can break mind control by telling people to simply remember. Alpha Flight's omniscient narrator actually speaks to the reader, giving the reader a unique perspective in the stories. The bad. The stories need more Department H. It's the true star of the book because it has manipulated the team to the point where Alpha is merely an experimental mess of internal fighting and incompetence that is never in control of its own destiny or memories. Because of the team's refusal to gel, the book eventually gets tedious to read without more Department H involvement. Overall, the villains are weak and the fight scenes are lame. In number four, Mesmero seems to have no motivation except to take over a diner, and the battle boils down to a few repetitive panels of people either being in mind control or freed for a bit back and forth. The fight with Chinook in number three ends when Sasquatch literally rips him in two, and nobody on the team seems to mind. Despite good panel layouts, the artwork often looks amateurish, rough, and sketchy, and many of the costume redesigns are complicated and unnecessary. Guardian's once perfectly simple costume now has distracting stripes on his head for some reason. The buzz. Fans have really taken to this revival series, so much so that it gave Siegel the plum assignment of writing Uncanny X-Men. This book thrives off Department H's manipulation of the team, but there's not enough to keep our interest in this purposely dysfunctional super team. The verdict? A three, which is just so-so. So yeah, they bring up some interesting things here. Yeah, I wasn't super on board with the art. I know he came from Wildstorm, and you can see it. Like, there's a lot of image influence here. The other thing that stood out to me is I did think Puck was probably the most engaging character, because he's just trying to be positive. He's trying to keep everybody together, and he also has good ideas that are constantly shot down. But the thing they praised with the narrator, I found that really distracting, because you're like, who the heck is this narrator? Why does he say, like, you are a Sagittarius guardian, and this means this about you? Like, it's just really off-kilter narration. I I assume eventually that gets revealed, because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense as to why there is such an involved narrator in the story. They like it. I did not. I found it very distracting. So the last one here is one that they've been kind of pushing for a while. It is Akiko, when Star Wars meets the Wizard of Oz. So they're reviewing issues one through six. This is written and drawn by Mark Crilly. What you need to know. Fourth grade Earth girl Akiko travels to the wondrous planet Smoo, where she encounters strange creatures, some of which help her search for Smoo's kidnapped prince. The good. Akiko is one of the most imaginative and exciting comics on the stands today. It just screams fun from the characters' names, Mr. Biba, Spuckler, Poog, etc., to the covers themselves. This book's just jam-packed with creativity. While the stories are simplistic in nature, there's a lot there. Akiko unabashedly borrows material from the best, Star Wars, The Wizard of Oz, etc., but presents it in an entertaining way. Sure, Spuckler's the adventuresome rogue, a la Han Solo, Gax is the wacky droid, R2-D2, and Mr. Biba's the intellect, C-3PO, but they're all fascinating characters unto themselves. Each character's personality is distinct and fleshed out. The constant bickering between Spuckler and Mr. Biba is a hoot. The art runs from deceptively simple to amazingly detailed. With just a few short lines, characters' expressions are perfectly portrayed, yet the backgrounds are beautifully rich and intricate. Mix in some awesome computer effects for shading tones, 
Jones and Akiko becomes one of the most colorful black and white comics around. The planet Smoo is a wonderful world. When Akiko and friends hit the moon gusset sea, there's a bridge miles and miles long and a fast food restaurant smack in the middle. You just never know what's going to pop up next. Also, every issue has three to five page backup story. Not tying it to the main storyline, these tales let readers see the characters in unexpected situations like answering fan mail or hitting the movies. These little tales certainly help flesh out the characters and manage to give each issue a story with a satisfying closure. That and the hilarious contests, witty fan mail responses, and behind the scenes sketches remind you that comics are all about fun. The bad? Not much. Our sole complaint is that we want more. As the series gets older, the main storyline's page count is getting shorter. Issue number 16's main tale was a whopping 15 pages. Yeah, we love those backups, but not at the expense of the main story. How about a 32-page issue with a 24-page story and a short backup? With easy reads and a number of big, gorgeous splash pages, shorter page counts change Akiko from a quick read to a blank read. Come on, give us more! The buzz, having been nominated for the Eisner Awards, Akiko is certainly gaining recognition from its peers. However, this book falls just far enough outside the mainstream that not a lot of people know about it. The skinny, Akiko is truly the most successful all-ages book being published, a creative kick-butt fairy tale adventure for all ages. It is a genuine joy to read. The verdict? A six! That is the best! Wow, so the, it is absolutely getting their highest rating. They really loved Akiko. But did I love Akiko, you say? Hey, thanks for asking. So recently, as you've heard probably on the podcast, Greg Orlando, former wizard staffer, copy editor, was nice enough to send over a trade care package of sorts. He wanted some scans of the issues that he worked on. And so he started sending me some swag that he collected from wizard over the years. And one of those things was an Akiko trade package paperback signed by the creator Mark Crilly. And so that was mixed in with some other stuff and I was like kind of interested because it had been mentioned here and there at Wizard over the last few issues. So I started reading it and it really is everything they describe here. I mean you can see the influences but the one they didn't mention that I really got the vibes from was uh, Little Nemo, right? The Little Nemo in Slumberland type of story because Akiko, yeah, is basically seemingly in this dream world she's getting pulled into. There's even a scene that's a dream with within the dream so she falls asleep while they're on their adventure she dreams that the prince that they're trying to rescue is there they go out her bedroom window and it's in like new york city is what it looks like and there is a giant roller coaster and so they are running away from this villainess on this roller coaster she's like switching the tracks and they're going on loops they're going on unfinished tracks like it is so beautifully rendered like they said and this is one of those things that you know you're always looking for that book that might hook your kids that book that might get them into comics and my daughter, you know, has rejected all the other comics I presented to her, especially if they were superhero. But I showed her this cover and she was just like, oh, that's cute. And then I started showing her the pictures, telling her about it. She got into it. The only thing is, it was an older trade and, you know, it's been around for a while and I think the glue had worn out. So the pages fell out of the cover and then a few got loose. And so I think she was turned off. She's like, oh, that's too old and it's broken. I don't want to read it. But <laughs> one of these days, maybe I can find another collection and get that over to her. Maybe I'll put a spiral binding on it or something to keep it together but i wonder if it ever did win an eisner award was there another opportunity maybe that it got Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're Manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 
summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in below the waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh, dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code wizard20, which my cousin just told me he ordered as well. Oh so, yeah, I mean, this yeah. is the season, man, like they're saying. And you know who's the king of summertime manscaping, Michael? It's Namor, <laughs> the Submariner. His Atlantean Speedo leaves very little to the imagination and dude always looks smooth when he's battling the villains of the deep blue sea imperious rex namor obviously hooked himself up with manscaped performance package 4.0 and it's time you do the same it has everything you need to prepare that summer bod manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming their Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to its advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves. I'll just tell you, Michael, like I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting hotter. I got to have less hair on the body, you know, just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts. I'm excited. Both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use. That's the best part. I don't have to like prep anything. I'm just like, nope, it's ready to go. It's a smooth experience all the way around. I got to say also, the battery lasts a long time. Like if you charge this, it will last you several uses before we need to recharge it as well, which I find very interesting. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Mm-hmm. Each lake or shower, this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. <laughs> <laughs> And once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness, even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often, they're very very comfortable and the shed travel bag wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months take a look at the shears 2.0 a luxury nail grooming kit this kit includes stainless steel nail cutters tweezers and grooming scissors so with the performance package 4.0 your balls will be ready to impress but make sure you cover the rest with the shears 2.0 so how do you go from imperious rexy to imperious sexy go to manscaped.com now get 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com it's smooth sack summer geeks get on board or get left behind let's go on over and check out the top 10 heroes and villains list
So in the number one spot, we have Witchblade. It says here, happiness. That's what Witchblade's all about today. You see, fans are happy the Top Cow's guaranteed shipping policy means a new issue of Witchblade every month, come hell or high water. And Top Cow is happy because it just signed penciler Michael Turner to a new contract, meaning Turner will be drawing Witchblade for a long time to come. And Turner's happy because that contract gives him enough money to buy a new bike, a new pair of orthopedic shoes for his grandma, and enough beer to float the love boat. Hey, beer and Meryl Steubing on the lead deck? Now that makes us happy. Yeah, so uh, interesting thing I just want to mention here. In the near future, we are going to be interviewing David Wohl, who was one of the bigwig executives at Top Cow and a co-writer of Witchblade about some of his current work, but you bet we are going to be asking him about these days in the 90s. So that's something for you to stay tuned for. Now in the number two spot, we have Spawn. Blech. Hasn't Spotty Guy got any manners? Look carefully, he's actually spitting as he talks. Man, if he went to Catholic school, he'd get the 12 inches of justice. That's a ruler for those of you who don't bow to Rome. Right across the knuckles. Toot sweet. We think that Todd McFarlane's most famous creation thinks he could get away with serious breaches of etiquette just because he's been in a major feature film. He's on an HBO weekly cartoon series, and his comic is consistently a top seller. The worst part? Judging from the average fan on the street reaction, he's right. So much for good manners. Uh, sadly, we will not be talking to Todd McFarlane anytime soon. <laughs> we do not have any ins there. Next here, number three, Wolverine. Speaking of good manners being worth about as much as a well-used hanky, we present our next subject, Wolverine. In his slightly nasty comic career, Wolvie has, by our unofficial count, killed 109 bad guys, punched another 4,867 bad guys real hard in the head, doled out 88 wedgies, refused a dozen perfectly good haircuts, panty-rated rogue twice, and squeeze the Charmin 53 times. Still, every fanboy from Kokomo to Kalamazoo loves the lug. Guess it's that tough-talking, street-talking, knuckle-busted, take-no-crap from man-woman-child or small-mammal attitude he's sporting. That, and the fact that he's in a kajillion books a month. Alright, the next one here, though, this is new. Number four is Bastion. Who is Bastion? Hot off making the X-Men's lives pure, unadulterated hell in the Zero Tolerance crossover, Bastion just may be the hottest mystery mutant since that Wolverine guy. Marvel's goods let slip that Bastion is a pre-existing character in a new form, but they haven't told us just who he is. We've seen a ton of speculation as to his identity, with leading candidates including Larry Trask, Bolivar Trask, Nimrod, the Master Mold, Wizard's own Mark Wolkowski, and the senior senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Ted Kennedy. What do we think? He just looks like Leonard Nimoy with a bad skin condition to us. <laughs> Bastion. Everybody loves an X mystery, don't they? Number five is Spider-Man. Hey, with the addition of Marvel Team-Up, there are now five monthly Spider titles. And in addition to comic appearances, Spidey's mug is plastered on every kind of merchandise you can imagine, from t-shirts to oversized depends, undergarments for spastic bladder fanboys. With all that work he's doing for the slave-driving Marvel Marvel Corporation, we hope he gets good benefits, an IRA, maybe a dental plan. If not, we think he should unionize with the Hulk and bust heads. Power to the people. Yeah, so uh, I will tell you, in the next issue also, I've kind of been reading ahead here, they have some things to say about Spider-Man in the year-end wrap-up that you may not like if you were a Spidey fan at this time, so we'll be curious to get your takes on these things. But number six is The Darkness. Jack Yesticato, The Darkness, is like a smorgasbord of sin. He's a mob hit man that covers thou shalt not kill he's a womanizer that covers thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's chick and worst of all he's got that damn stringy 
comic book hair always hanging in his face covering thou shalt be able to see hot damn it lest the angelus blindsides you and knock your friggin teeth out because you can't see her coming that's commandment number one for those of you scored at home number seven is blink remember last month sure you do we ran the top 10 still dead heroes and villains list and blink was on it this month we're back to our regular list and blink is still on it jeez louise dead or alive the x-men's teleporting chicky is one muy popular character so in comics where you can be dead and they get better why the heck doesn't marvel bring her back it's beyond us the fans speak every month they want blink back but i picked up some exiles books from like the early issues but i also in that collecting i picked up the what if blink had not died issue so i'm wondering if that was like the precursor to like let's test it one more time if this issue sells it is hugely popular we will bring her back we'll have to find out if somebody is a super fan that can verify that for us number eight is dark child now little miss ariel child here while she starts out looking pretty darn great usually ends up pretty darn ugly you see she can take the shape and become anything from her dreams since she's a nightmare type of girl she usually winds up looking like some monster that's a cross between mike tyson and the predator but if we had that power we'd look a little different come to think of it we probably look a lot like a taco bell burrito supreme or a plague coming down on france <laughs> wow just laying it down on the french okay number nine is don we know the three teardrop eye thingy is don's trademark but why cry the lucifer's halo paperback is coming out reprinting the don miniseries plus there's a don statue of the works and don's even appearing on the cover of a new gary newman cd maybe she's crying because she knows she's going into cold storage the next don comic project won't be coming out until the December 1999, which is enough to make a comic character and a legion of slobbering fans start crying. Yeah, so I saw this ad for this Gary Newman album themed around Dawn. I want to give it a listen. I also saw that there was a Witchblade soundtrack that was released around this time as well. So that was just the thing. And I love listening to music when I'm reading my comics. So that's a cool thing I'm going to have to track down. Bring it up the rear of the number 10 spot. It is the Hulk. Rargh! Hulk smash puny human. Hulk smash whoever draw him with tiny head and shoulders as wide as aircraft carrier. Or not. Actually, Green Jeans is gaining popularity on a daily basis due to the artist on his book. One Mr. Adam Kubert. Seems Adam's good at drawing big, giant, uh, hulking characters. And artificiados around the comics world are turning on to the super hulked up Hulk. The J-Giant is looking bigger than ever, which means he just may get more popular than ever. So there you go. That was the top 10 heroes and villains of the month but let's check out the poor schlubs who just don't rate yes we're talking about the mort of the month This month's mort is Humbug. Bow and tremble before Humbug, who commands amplified bug noises? Yep, no typo here. Seems that Buck Mitty, sounds like a porno star to us, was a professor of entomology. That's the study of bugs. When his university funding was cut off, so he turned to insect-related crime to get more dough. He recorded bug noises and played them back on a Walkman at super high volume to pop tires and knock people loopy and stuff. As if this weren't bad enough, he also wore stupid canvas high-top tennis runners and a big HB on his forehead. Thankfully, Spider-Man kicked his ass and he disappeared after one issue. Strangely? 
this is one issue I have read just because the cover of it was so bizarre. I'm like, humbug? But this actually gets one of the highest Mort ratings I've ever seen because it's just one head below the top. And they always have this weird Mort head that they call the Mortometer. And so, yeah, that's pretty wild there. They really, really thought he was a loser and they didn't even have to dump on him too much. So it's like, you get it, right? Yeah, you get it. All right, well, that's the top 10 heroes and villains, but hey, why not check out our top 10 comics? Yes, here they are, the top 10 ranked comic books of October 1997, according to the hundreds of retailers that Wizard checked in with on a monthly basis. So in the number one spot, we have JLA number one. Yeehaw! That's right, it's yee and ha both, as JLA books occupy both the number one and number two slots in this month's Merry Little Countdown, which would appear that JLA is about the biggest thing going with comic collectors since pre-sliced cheese. Now just why is that? Let us count the ways. First and foremost, people seem to dig that the current JLA is the A-list of DC's characters, featuring such stalwarts as Superman, Batman, Flash, and Wonder Woman all under one convenient cover. Plus, they like the funkified writing of Grant Morrison, who brings a weird sensibility to superheroes and sets up the great, continued next blurb, number two, JLA number two, comic book moment! Like when Luther cuffed the Joker at number 11 to keep him in line, better than dirt near anyone else. They also like the angular in-your-face layout style of Howard Porter, but most importantly, JLA is part of the vast international conspiracy that forces high-interest credit cards down our throats under the guise of blatant consumerism equaling the good life and brings us clone sheep and the Spice Girls. So even if you couldn't give a rat's ass about DC, Morrison, or Porter, you'll probably like JLA anyhow. There's really nothing you could do. Submit. Resistance is futile. Just relax and go with the flow, huh? Wow. <laughs> Got a little deep there. Uh, but yeah, so JLA number one was in the number one spot previously, but JLA number two was number four, and now it's climbed up. Now number three is the darkness. Speaking of international conspiracies, Top Cow was trying to set up one of its own and conquer the world via the darkness. As of this moment, the darkness is actually sliding ahead of Witchblade in terms of back issue demand. Why, you ask? Well, the darkness hasn't been around as long, so many collectors are still filling in their runs. Plus, Witchblade prices have gone so high that the darkness appears to be, comparatively, a bargain. Put them together, and you've got Jackie Estacado outpacing his female counterpart. Speaking of which, number four is Witchblade number one. Speaking of international conspiracies, did you know that Top Cow publishes its comics in a variety of languages around the world, including Portuguese for the Brazilian market? Tis true! And our well-placed spies tell us that Witchblade number one is every bit as hot on the streets of Rio as it is in the U.S. Even though the creators go by different names, Christina Z is known as La Chica Z down in Brazil, while David Wall is called El Escribador Pequeño. But Detron is still Detron in any language. <laughs> anyway, number five, Dark Child number one. In an informal poll of random wizard staffers, three out of six people said Hooters, or a variation thereof when asked to associate a word with Dark Child. But dadgummit, Dark Child is about more than just Hooters. It's about a young woman, both blessed and cursed by her nightmares, and her constant struggle to both control and outrace the Dark Dream that plague her, but her hooters are kind of nice too. <laughs> And we all like Hooters, so we think of those when we think Dark Child. Well, there it is. If you ever wanted the example of 
wizard's juvenile take on female comic book characters. Anyway, number six, Batman the Long Halloween. Everyone likes a mystery. That's why, dear God in heaven, we're not making this up. Murder, she wrote, is one of the top-rated TV shows of all time. And that's why Batman the Long Halloween is so mind-numbingly popular. It's a good, compelling mystery. Who is Holiday? Has become the most asked fanboy question since when do you think all these zits are gonna go away? As the 13-issue Maxi series comes to a close, Batman the Long Halloween is actually picking up steam, a testimony to its strong following. Last month, it was not rated at all, so it wasn't even on the list now it's number six that is pretty impressive number seven thunderbolts number one okay it took a month or two for the back issue buzz to build but people are now starfing up thunderbolts faster than 99 cent chicken mcnuggets why are they getting on board now well it's finally become apparent with a few issues in circulation that this book ain't no one trick pony sure the t-bolts are really the insidious masters of evil in disguise and that's good for shock value and all but we now see that aside for one great gimmick it's also one great book last month it was number 17 now it's number seven and we've heard from a lot of you online that yeah thunderbolts was just unbelievable as well as your love for this one number eight alpha flight number one just as more people are turning on to thunderbolts so too are they turning on to alpha flight but they're doing it for the same reasons why they like batman the long halloween confused so are the readers and that's the point flight is chock full of mysteries that readers just have to see explained why is sasquatch now mindless how did guardian get de-aged to 19 years old and what happens when it rains and the spandex superhero costumes get wet would they chafe like a bugger we think so last month it was number 10 now number nine this is like the big change the Men in Black, number one. And if you didn't know, this is written by Lowell Cunningham. The artist is Sandy Carruthers, names you've probably never heard. Simple drill, here we go. Comic book published, called The Men in Black, looks cheesy, black and white, published by something called Air Cell Comics. No one cares. Print run is about eight copies. Later come Candy Marketing Guys. Candy Marketing Guys sell to Hollywood guys who'll buy anything. Beats million to one odds, becomes funny hit movie that everyone digs. Later come Comic Collectors, Collectors like neat, shiny things like comic books on which hit movies are based. Demand goes nuts. Now number nine. Happy ending. Roll credits. <laughs> that is gotta be the story. I would love to know, yeah, how many copies of the Men in Black just suddenly appeared in 1997. They're like, oh yeah, we got a bunch of those in the back issue bins. All right, finally, number 10. He was number 10 on the top 10 Heroes of Villains list. He's number 10 on the top comics list. Incredible Hulk number 449. Remember those kind words we said about thunderbolts at number seven no then you've been sniffing too much elbers get off the stuff kid anywho those kind words lead back to here because hulk number 449 is the first appearance of the thunderbolts and now every collector worth his mylar is salivating over this book in this ish old jay jaws has a faint hint of recognition when he encounters meteorite who's really moonstone and thinks he knows her Hmm, the Hulk's on to them. Can the T-Bolts ruse last? Yeah, well, and, you know, as we're gearing up for the Thunderbolts movie that's coming, it sounds like a lot of people are hunting down that issue as well. Any of you out there found it recently, or did you always have it all these years? So yeah, there you go, the top 10 comics. Always fascinating to see what was getting everybody's attention. Before I close out this segment, I just want to mention that over in the Market Watch section, there's actually something here, you know, we've been covering a lot of Heroes Return. We did the whole bonus episode on it, so it's just on my mind. And it says here, Heroes Return to Comic Zone? Variant covers, variant covers, variant covers. Seems like an old story, but here's a new twist. Single retailer variants. Mail order companies like American Entertainment and Comic Cavalcade have offered a bevy of them for years. Now a storefront retailer is getting into the game on a rather high profile 
profile book. Minnesota-based Comic Zone is offering 8,000 copies of Heroes Reborn The Return Number 1 with a painted variant cover featuring the Visible Woman, Franklin Richards, and Man-Thing by Dave DeVries, shown above. The variant went free to any customer who ordered the entire Return miniseries, and if there are any left over, they'll be offered for sale at $5 each, probably at the exact second you read this. And is this edition absolutely guaranteed to jack up in price? Of course not, but it gives you collectors and completists something to live for. So I thought I'd point that out to you. If you were really enjoying our Heroes Return coverage, if you have all four issues of the miniseries but didn't know this one existed, hey, get on out there on eBay, see what it's going for. Uh, you know, it's actually interesting as well because a lot of you have been telling us as we've been posting these like limited comics ads from Wizard that you were ordering like tons from American Entertainment or Comic Cavalcade, less so. But it sounds like a lot of people even just found them after the fact. Like people bought them, sold off their comic collections. Now you can find them in back issue bits. I found one for the 10th the other day. So yeah, it's interesting how that all goes. But let's get ready to close this thing out. So before we go, I want to get into this profile on Randy Queen, because Wizard really was giving a lot of coverage to Dark Child. We saw her mentioned on both top 10 lists. There was this moment in time where she was a big deal. And so I want to get into who Randy Queen was, because I just have no idea. Where did he go? What did he do? So here's the bio they're giving us. Randy Queen only comes out at night. And the brains behind Image's Dark Child say there's a good reason why his pencil doesn't touch paper until the moon rises. Quote, at night is when the creative things happen, says the 26-year-old Atlanta resident, who's quick with the quip and a dash of bravado. Quote, when there's nothing good on television and your friends stop calling, that's when the switch goes on. The comic book switch flicked on early for Queen. As a child, he not only read the exploits of Spider-Man, He-Man, and Hulk, he lived them. Quote, I was the kind a kid who would put on a Spider-Man costume, try to leap over a fence and get hung up on it until someone came and rescued me. And that's a true story. Also true is that Queen, after a sabbatical from comics, once again got bit in the seventh grade. Quote, my friend and I were in detention and I was bored. He handed me a copy of an X-Men comic. I was surprised at how good it was and pretty much decided at that point comics was what I wanted to do. After high school, Queen spent the next four years attending comic shows, paying dues, and developing rhinoceros skin in the face of constant rejection. He finally broke through in 92 on equal parts guts and talent. Quote, I drove to a Houston show because I knew Todd McFarlane was going to be there. I ran into Todd in a hotel lobby, twisted his arm, jumped on his back and said, you gotta look at my stuff. He did, liked my winky drawing, and I ended up breaking in with a winky pinup in spawn number seven. A similar sneak attack on Jim Valentino resulted in Queen inking Shadowhawk 11 and 14, the Shadowhawk gallery, and some trading cards. A slightly less forceful barrage at the San Diego Comic-Con ended with Queen pencil pushing on Cyberforce Origins numbers two and three, and a backup story in Cyberforce 13 through 15. At that point, Queen decided it was time to dust off his own creation, Dark Child. He showed it to Maximum Press and it ran there for a while, but, quote, things didn't work out. Fortunately, Image was there to throw me a lifeline. With September's Dark Child number 5 behind him, the writer-artist is prepping a new Dark Child series for early 1998 called Dark Child The Legacy, which he describes as, quote, a cross-country murder 
mystery. Queen laughingly admits that his nocturnal work habits often put a crimp on his social life. Girlfriends? I try to squeeze them in whenever possible. I've been a slave to women many times and it never works out. So for a while, I'm going to be selfish and be a slave to the work. Wow, so peek inside the comics-focused mind of Randy Queen. All right, so they do their little Q&A here. They say, first comic read, I saved 32 cents and pennies, dumped them on the 7-Eleven counter, and got Marvel's Star Wars number four. I was hooked. Favorite comics of all time? The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Both are real works of art. Favorite works of your own? All I see are the mistakes. Given that, Dark Child number four has had the fewest mistakes. Superpower you would most want? Flying. I'd probably have to follow the roads so I would get lost. Comics you currently read? Spawn, Gen 13, and the 10th. I like the dark elements and the angst. Favorite munchie at 2am? Peanut flavored power bars. Favorite toy as a kid and as an adult? As a kid, I had a giant Godzilla I was nuts over. As an adult, my new 97 Pathfinder. Things you collect? Too damn many toys. I gotta stop. People you would most want to meet? Jack Nicholson, Steve Perry, and Nikki Taylor. They're all real cool. Person who would play you in a movie about yourself? Kiefer Sutherland. I actually totally see that in this picture. <laughs> Favorite cartoon? Animaniacs is pretty funny. Hey! People you would most like to work with? Jack Nicholson and Todd McFarlane. They're both heroes to me. Favorite musical performers? Journey. Hence Steve Perry being mentioned earlier. Favorite TV show? Beverly Hills 90210. Don't call me Wednesdays from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. <laughs> Last good movie you saw? Blood and Wine. I like Jack Nicholson. That's the only reason to watch this. Last good book you read? Jack's Life by Patrick McGilligan. The book goes a long way towards explaining why we tend to make celebrities into gods. If you had the power of the Beyonder, I'd like the power to make my deadlines without the use of caffeine. So there you go, a peek inside the mind of Randy Queen. But if you want a peek inside the minds of your wizard hosts, oh, what's going on over here? We're not just talking about Sin City casting calls. No, we are having a lot of fun over on Patreon. Okay, so here's what's going on with Patreon, guys. You know the drill, patreon.com forward slash wizards comics. Well, we had a second tier that we added, okay? We had our heroes in motion tier where you could get access to our exclusive Discord, and then we also were offering a bonus podcast each month, 90s Super Cinema, where we discuss 90s superhero comic book-based movies, which Mystery Men is our last one in that series from this period. Why? Because we are going to be moving moving it to our $5 tier, and we're going to go back to having just one tier. It seemed like a lot of you who are joining the Patreon are really just in it for the PDF scan of the issue. You really want to be able to devour it and get into it. And so we said, hey, we'll just throw on a bonus podcast every once in a while, but you on our main feed who are not subscribed even to the $5 Patreon level, but why wouldn't you? You are going to be able to hear these throughout the summer. Kind of a summer movie series as we go on vacation. We need some episodes to fill the gap and so you're going to be able to get in touch with everything we think about movies like Batman Forever. We're going to be talking about The Phantom. We're talking about Mystery Man, the Spawn movie from 1997. All of those will be coming your way this summer. But if you want the new episodes that we're going to be recording, then you want to join the Patreon because if you love what we're doing here, you're going to love our thoughts on the comic book movies as well. But as far as what's coming up on the main feed besides those bonus episodes, we have The Wizard Files is making its 
triumphant return. We haven't done a whole lot of interviews this year, and so we wanted to get that going again for you. First up, we have Brian Douglas Ahern. Yes, the cartoonist and illustrator who contributed, not only creating those awesome calendars each month that were on the other side of the posters that were packed in with Wizard, but a ton of comic strips and other things in all of the Wizard magazines. His story is fascinating. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes details you won't see coming, but it's all fun. It's all positive. I was so surprised. Sometimes you hear the darker side. He did not experience that in any way. Uh, but also, we're going to be talking to Michael Dolce, who is from a little bit a different era. He's in the early 2000s is when he joined up with Wizard, and he had a lot to say just about like the internet and Wizard and all of the details of, hey, being an aspiring comic book creator who is working at Wizard at that time, what's the mindset? What are you learning? So there's going to be a lot of fun there as well. More people on the horizon as we find them coming out of the woodwork. I will say, this is just a little fun thing I'll drop. Today, as we were recording, just got an unsolicited DM from Joe Casey. Yeah. That Joe Casey, X-Men writer, man of action, greener Ben 10. He just reached out, said he had discovered the podcast, he was loving it, and who knows, maybe down the line that love will turn into an actual conversation we get to have with him and bring your way. But hey, in the meantime, speaking of social media, this great place where we get to interact with each other, get to know each other, find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, go over to the Facebook group, Wizards the Podcast Guide to Comics, subscribe to that YouTube channel, Wizards the Podcast guide to comics is always bringing you new content whether it's a wizard's hall video showing you the things that are coming into the archives or something special like our yes it's coming back it is the superhero fantasy draft now an annual tradition you've heard me mention it before that is coming up in july so if you want to get in on that make sure you're staying connected to our social media make sure you're seeing all the updates that we're going to be dropping there for you for how you could get in there's only 10 slots it's going to our page patrons first if you want to make sure you get in then maybe subscribe to the patreon at least for a month so you get that premium selection that you're the top tier of who we want to bring on board with us but either way thank you so much for checking out this mini episode thanks for supporting the podcast thanks for telling your friends you're continuing to help the wizards universe grow and we really really appreciate it but hey until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.